I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. We talk senior pay, the civic role of universities, and what university staff think of the TEF. It's all coming up. The really critical thing here is the gap between the poorest uh, paid people in universities and the, and the richest, uh, both in terms of the relative, uh, you know, the pay ratio there, and also the extent to which vice-chancellors' pay increases at a much greater rate than it does for those who are, who are the least well-off within the universities. There's also interesting things that you Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm your host, Rachel Firth, and here to climb the mountains of higher education policy. As usual, we have three excellent guests. South of the River today, we have Director of Social Mobility and Student Success at King's College London, Anne-Marie Canning. Anne-Marie, your highlight of the week, please. Well, firstly, it's got to be recording this podcast on Valentine's Day. Um, But actually, secondly, on Monday, I was uh, walking along the South Bank and this stranger tapped me on the shoulder and said, hi, Anne-Marie. And I thought, who the heck is this person? And it was a student I'd uh, helped to go to university in Oxford and is now a very, very successful uh, accountant. So that was a real, real highlight to start the week off with. Um, And in Oxford, we have Professor of Social and Architectural History and author of Red Brick, The History of Britain's Civic Universities, William White. William, your highlight of the week, please. My higher education highlight of the week, I think, was the rediscovery or the disinterment of the amazing video that was made by the now departed uh, Vice Chancellor of De Montfort, uh, miming um, at some length to uh, uh, um, uh, Bonnie Tyler, which I think fully justified his pay, to be honest. Um, and uh, in London, we have Wonky's assistant editor, Artie Nanshupan. Artie, your highlight of the week, please. Mine is basically that I've kind of been on a wave of discovering, rediscovering childhood snacks for the last few weeks. And this week I found in my local Tesco, Hartley's Jelly. So I bought, I've basically been buying these strawberry jelly pots every week. They just make me so happy. Is well, this product placement? Yeah. If I hadn't said Hartley's, it might have been all right. <laughs> Hashtag influencer. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's shocking. And if Hartley's do want to become our headline sponsor of the Wonky <laughs> do get in touch at team at wonky.com. Um, anyway, this week we start with senior staff remuneration. The Office for Students, or OFS, has published the data for 2017-18. Regulated providers are obliged to release information on the numbers of staff paid over £100,000 and provide inf- information on the packages of staff paid over £150,000. Data is also provided on the ratio between the remuneration packages of heads of providers and the median income of all staff employed in the provider. So, Arte, would you do the honours and leaders off on this one, please? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one. It's the first time that the OFS has published um, these figures and this analysis along with it. Um, it comes after Joe Johnson announced that the OFS would do this kind of at the end of 2017, and it's finally come into fruition for that academic year. So, if we actually look at the data, which has not only the numbers of people... Um, 
on pay above 100,000, but also um, the details of those above 150,000. You can also see um, remuneration that's kind of not based on pay. So there's payoffs and there's also non-salary kind of benefits. Um, and the trends show us that um, a lot of the vice chancellors with the highest pay come from uh, often Russell Group and and pre-92 providers, um, but that there are a lot more newer universities sort of moving up the rankings, if you will, as well. Look, vice chancellors are running very complex, large, multi-million pound organizations, and we need pay packages that, that reflect those responsibilities and the complexities of the organizations that they're, that they're running. I think what interested me more in the report was the pay ratios. Um, and I think that's a real step forward for the OFS publishing, publishing pay ratios. Uh, it's something that the high pay centre have been doing for FTSE companies for a number of years. And it, it sort of shows you uh, the ratio between the lowest paid staff and the highest paid staff. And, and that for me really is at the crux of this report. Um, only 33 universities are living wage accredited employers, which is absolutely appalling. Uh, over 80% of our universities are not accredited as paying living wage, uh, which is £9 an hour. Um, so for me, the, the highlight of the report, I know, I know there's obviously lots of headline catching um, figures of, of extraordinary amounts of money, and it's really great. It captures the wider benefits, not just the, the actual salary package, um, is, is that pay ratio, because I think that is a deeply... Um, well, I think it's a deeply concerning, but also quite sad indictment of where we are uh, in terms of higher education sector and, and how it treats its low-paid workers. Yeah, I'd agree absolutely with that. I mean, it seems to me that the really critical thing here is the gap between the poorest uh, paid people in universities and the and the richest, uh, both in terms of the relative, uh, you know, the pay ratio there and also the extent to which vice-chancellors pay increases at a much greater rate than it does for those who are, who are the least well-off within the universities. There's also interesting things in the data there where, um, you know, some universities have submitted and so the pay ratio are slightly odd because some some universities have submitted their agency staff as part of the as part of the data set and others have not um, and one wonders what would happen if all universities were forced to you know uh, submit exactly the same data set what would happen to the pay ratios there and in what ways are universities getting away with paying people even worse than the low living wage precisely because they're employing an awful lot of casual and agency staff instead of having um, you know properly paid members of staff I mean this is something that's a you know a debate that's going on, you know, at at Senate House in London at the moment about the extent to which the staff there are not uh, are, are agency staff, and therefore, you know, even though the University of London is moving towards living wage accreditation, actually they're they're, they're ducking out of it because they're avoiding paying everyone, um, you know, a proper wage. I mean, ultimately, the the packages, the salaries, the payoffs of VCs and some senior leaders is often a decision at board or committee level. And in a week where we saw the VC that only had a, a great video that William alluded to, but the VC with the highest pay increase actually stepping down, how much of this is a governance issue? Well, it's two things, isn't it, if it's all right for me to jump in. I mean, it's two things. One is that there's a governance issue and there is something interesting about the way in which uh, remuneration committees operate and the way in which they are determining the pay of these uh, of these um, uh, vice chancellors in which you see you know, as we heard vice chancellors are getting um, 
you know, big increases in institutions in particular, you wouldn't have thought that necessarily we're doing quite as well um, as the um, bonuses the vice chancellors are getting suggest. But there's also, I mean, as Anne-Marie was suggesting, there's a bigger cultural thing, which is about making sure that all members of the university are, are well rewarded. And I think there's a real problem if the vice chancellor is getting rewarded for achievement and, and actually the, the, the majority of the staff are not. I think the, the other element of the report, which is important um, to, to highlight, is the assessment of how many members of staff are paid over £100,000, uh, both in percentages and, and real numbers. Uh, and that, that offers a degree of clarity on, on high pay within universities that we've not previously had in such a structured way. Um, I, think, I think future iterations of the report, it'd be great to start um, bringing in some of the gender pay gap um, material so that we have a really holistic view of how pay is working and also to integrate that low pay uh, element as well. So you could imagine a really um, forward thinking report that looks at pay in its entirety Obviously, the political focus is on is on um, vice chancellor pay. I just wonder if we're sometimes missing the tone of how we need to talk about this as universities as well, because. Um Arthi made the point that we sort of say, oh, it's an international market and we must have the very best and compete and all the rest of it. Just not sure we necessarily get the tone right in the current economic climate climate around around high level pay. So if I think about a, an analogy with local government, um, you know, I've got some experience in local government. If you think about the chief exec of a local uh, authority who is, you know, working in challenging circumstances, uh, she is running a multi-million pound organisation with lots of very pressing demands, the salaries there aren't equivalent to vice chancellors. So I just wonder if we've got something going on in terms of prestige, uh, the, the, the nature of higher education and all the rest of it. And I think we just need to take a moment to think about how we have these conversations, either if we're defending or actually being critical of, of high level pay in universities. It's also the case, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to see that this really is an international market for lots of these institutions. I mean, they're not recruiting internationally. It's not that they fear that their vice chancellor is suddenly going to go off and head Princeton or something like that. I mean, there are a number of institutions in Britain that are genuinely part of an international market like that, but quite a lot aren't. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name is Martin Levy, and I'm a librarian at the University of Bradford. This is a short piece about a letter from the rather feisty Australian writer P.L. Travers, author of the Mary Poppins book, to one of the organisers of the London Anti-University, which was one of the main providers of alternative HE in the London of the late 1960s and early 70s. The letter is interesting on a number of counts. First, because it's new, it hasn't been published or written about before. Second, because of what it says both about Travers and about alternative HE. For example, about what was it like to be a student at a self-consciously radical and modish university in the late 60s. And third, I'd say, because it brings into focus the sorts of challenges faced by teachers and policymakers in all eras and in all areas of HE, both conventional and alternative, such as how to motivate the brightest and the best students and how to keep them motivated. Indeed, as I wrote the article, I sometimes found myself wondering how I would have fared as the teacher of such a critical and indeed sarcastic learner as the author of Mary Poppins. Hopefully a little better than the hapless bod in her letter. Hello, this is Paul Griffiths. I'm registrar at the University of Nottingham and a regular wonky contributor under the registrarism moniker. This week, I've been posting yet more true crime on campus stories, the surprising goings on at the University of Nottingham and the amazing attempts by our security staff to deal with them. It's number 54 in an ongoing series. Some of the great examples that our security staff have had to deal with of late include uh, reports of an occupant of a vehicle seen throwing eggs at a bus on Beeston Lane. But also, uh, we had reports of a sheep on Station Road. Security contacted the farm manager who sent one man and his dog to round them up. 
And then perhaps most surprisingly, we had a report of a live goldfish in a toilet in the Trent building. Security attended and removed the goldfish from the U-Bend. Officers took the goldfish to the Millennium Gardens and released it into the water feature, where we hope it's still swimming around happily. There's plenty more of that in the blog and plenty more also in the True Crime on Campus book, which is available um, both in hard copy form, but also uh, on Kindle through Amazon as well. There's full details in the blog post about how you can order that and raise money for charity at the same time. So no doubt there'll be plenty more true crime on campus incidents in future. Um, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy reading them and do please buy the book. Thanks a lot, Mary. Next, the Civic University Commission has launched their final report. Chaired by the former head of the civil service, Lord Kerslake, the key recommendation from the report is that universities should produce a civic university agreement in partnership with their local government and other major institutions in the area. Lord Kerslake said the deep economic and social changes that are happening in Britain today have made the civic role of universities even more vital to the places they are located in. And he went on to say it's not just the people outside the university grounds who will benefit. Universities are under unprecedented challenge and need to find a broader base of support. William, as a commissioner of the Civic University Commission, it's only right that you lead us off on this one. So we've just spent the last 18 months or so uh, um, travelling up and down the country and taking evidence from civic universities and from civic leaders and from various people. We did opinion polling. We got, uh, you know, evidence sent in to us. And what we found was that lots of universities think of themselves as civic universities and lots of universities are doing things that they think of as civic. But there isn't a very clear sense of what it is to be truly civic, what it is actually to be a civic university rather than a university that just thinks you're a civic university. And so we think at this moment it's really rather important for universities to do exactly what what Lord Kerslake was saying, which is to, you know, not just say that they're civic, but actually do something to help uh, support their local communities and as a result uh, get the local communities to support them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a helpful um, piece of structure to to bring sort of clarity and and order to the civic university claims. Um, As William sort of mentioned, we've got lots of universities making claims about their role in in place Um, but you know you've got some people who are really walking uh, the talk as well as talking the talk and so these agreements will also be really helpful in in sharing those experiences and and helping to understand what universities are doing. I mean for me this civic university um, stuff has become quite trendy in in recent years Um, but you know I I don't think it's a fad I think it's universities rediscovering uh, their true nature. Many universities were set up with um, civic intention so we're sort of rediscovering our our traditions and, and reinvigorating them. And one of the drivers for that is the current um, political climate. Um, it was really interesting because um, I think it was Andy Westwood who, who wrote for the um, wonky website um, re- reviewing the Civic Universities report. Um, and he sort of was challenging government to think more about place-based working. I mean, I think government is having a real moment in terms of place-based working, actually. And so the, the, the work in Bradford, for example, an opportunity area is all around bringing the key actors together in, in that city, in that region, uh, to, to improve the life chances of young people and universities are at the heart of opportunity areas actually uh, many of them are headed up by vice chancellors except poor Bradford who got me um, but um, I, you know I can I can see that there's you know there's real appetite in universities to do this stuff but there's also real appetite around universities uh, in organizations like local government for that for that partnership working um, although I have to say this 500 million pounds Andy said it wasn't very much I, I mean it doesn't feel like it's not very much to me in, in current current situation we are financially um, and, and also 
how people feel about universities and, and our funding arrangements. So I, I thought that was quite a big ask, actually. Something I really liked about it is that it basically it introduces the the matter of place into a lot of debates within higher education. So, for example, um, there was a point made about how Leo data didn't um, wasn't necessarily sort of appropriate for use in TEF because of different earnings. And I think this affects the social mobility debate as well about whether social mobility is about take, like kind of extracting people from their local area to go and study at university elsewhere. And it just seems like region and location is often the ignored factor in a lot of these debates. So even in the vice chancellor pay um, discussions we were having before, the pay isn't really, I mean, obviously pay is affected by living costs, which are affected by region. And that's not really considered in in those in the analysis so i kind of just think that regions often overlooked and this does a really good job of kind of demonstrating how wide-ranging an effect on policy could have if we were to take location a bit more seriously um no no i mean i think just to just to build on that i mean that really is a central thing that we're trying to say in the report is that you know what's happened with um what's happened with higher education policy over the last you know 60 70 years is first of all it became a national system and the local universities lost their connection with the localities and then of course we moved into a world in which we started talking about international systems but there's never been a serious attempt to think about you know the geographical spread of universities to think about place as being a fundamental part of it and there are all sorts of perverse incentives that have prevented universities from maximizing this and you know actually the TEF as it works at the moment doesn't you know because it looks at uh, average salaries it disregards all those you know people working in areas with relatively low um, low uh, incomes also people moving into small and uh, medium-sized enterprises who tend to have a, a lower salary to begin with you know they are all damaged by it the way in which the ref because its categories are are at least linguistically at least they're, they're all they're all geographical in which the top ranked work is international and the stuff that isn't worth doing isn't even nationally recognized that tends to have a perverse uh, a perverse effect on you know localized research and the way in which you know, all of these things, if we come back to thinking about universities in place, then we start to think about universities really very differently. And we also hopefully unlock um, funding for that. So it's not just that we've recommended a civic university fund. It's also that we have suggested that, you know, the Strength in Places Fund could be a really important way in which universities can access extra money, which enables them to fulfil their, their civic um, functions, their, their, their role in their locality without, as it were, necessarily drawing on student fees. Every week this season on the podcast, we are delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here is part six of the hidden history of HE. Durham University is set up in order to extract uh, the vast wealth of the Bishop of Durham, put it to useful purpose. And so they, they get off and set off in a very... Um, uh, clear mode that they're like uh, Oxford and Cambridge colleges, uh, a traditional curriculum, although they do branch out and do new and exciting things like an engineering course. Um, but what happens later is there's a civic need for uh, higher education. So Owens, uh, uh, John Owens, is uh, a merchant and he sees well, what Manchester needs is its own college. So he founds, by giving them a, a sizable amount of money in his bequest, a college to be set up. And obviously they, they said, oh, this is great, we'll have a university. The other towns in the north say, oh, no, you can't have a university on your own. We have to have something along the same kind of lines. And so there's a sense that, well, you can't possibly set up just one college to do that. So Owens is refused, after it's been going a few years, the right to become a university. So what it gets is a federal university, an examining university, 
kind of similar to the University of London. Um, so the university will set the exams and Col Owens College will do the teaching. Now the weird thing is for the first couple of years it's only Owens College is the only college of this and the Victoria University uh, only has the one college. But Liverpool and Leeds both get their act together and set up colleges and apply to join. And so over time they get a federal university which is a bit of an awkward compromise. Uh, the federal university is, is chaired in turn by the vice-chancellors of the different universities. They all teach the same curriculum. The students all take the same examination they're all graduates of the Victoria University. Uh, and that's ticking along okay uh, until Birmingham wants to develop its college. It's got a college, it's got a, found, uh, a generous uh, donor, uh, Josiah Mason, who's given them uh, plenty of cash. He's a businessman. Um, and they're setting off in the same way. They're going to have a federal university too. There's going to be University of the Midlands. There's talk in uh, Bristol of a University of the Southwest. This is the pattern we're all going to go to. But they, instead of uh, proceeding on their happy path, Joseph Chamberlain becomes uh, the uh, president of Josiah Mason College. Incidentally, he was a business competitor of Josiah Mason, uh, but he becomes president of this college, and part of his big thing for Birmingham is to take this college forward. But he's also made rector of Glasgow University, so he spends quite a lot of time in Glasgow, and he likes two things about that. Firstly, he likes the fact that they've taken the campus out of the city centre and put it in an attractive new campus, so he likes that idea. He also likes that it's the University of Glasgow, not some kind of mixed you know, federal university somewhere else. It's a university for the city, doing things for the city, and which people are very proud of. So when he comes back to Birmingham, he says, we're not having a federal university. We're going to have a university of Birmingham. We're not, you know, otherwise I'm going to give up and we're going to, you know, stuff, stuff a lot of you. So because he happens, just so happens to be a member of the cabinet, he bends the wheel of Whitehall to say, we're going to have a, a single teaching university. University of Birmingham will not have any extra colleges. It'll just be a university on its own. And that will be, you know, that, that's going to be the whole of it. He gets by uh, dint of that to erase the name of Josiah Mason uh, from the name of the college. Um, obviously not part of his original plan. So the University of Birmingham goes off on its way uh, and, and Mason is... is gently let to, to be forgotten. Now this excites the people in Liverpool because they've got their university college but they're part of the Victoria University and they say, hang on a second, if Birmingham can have its own university, we've got to have our own university. So they petition to have the Victoria University wound up and then become a university in their own right. So you'd expect the Victoria University to object to this a bit but the University of um, the, the Yorkshire College really objects. Probably, the speculation is because they're a bit weedy, a bit small, and unlikely to become a university in their own right. So they make a strong objection to the winding up of the Victoria University. So Liverpool's kind of trapped. Manchester Owens College is thinking, well, we, we could be our own university, that'd be quite good. Um, but Leeds is vehemently against. So the Privy Council, who's the only people in charge of universities or education at that time, forms a committee, a really high-powered committee. And the kind of people who go and pitch to this committee are Haldane, who are you know, famous for all of these other exciting higher education things, uh, 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 Sydney Webb, all sorts of really important reformers think the idea of a, a teaching university is, is worth pressing, so they hold this great committee hearing, and the minutes are fabulous, because there's just mad arguments. The people on both sides argue with each other, these senior politicians play out there all their arguments, there's some great dialogue as people say, you know, are you bringing standards down by setting up your own university? Oh no, we're not, etc, etc. So, 
At the end of this, the Privy Council agree that Liverpool can be its own university, Manchester can keep the Victoria University, which incidentally is why it was called the Victoria University of Manchester through to its, its merger with UMIS, um, but then that leaves Leeds in a slightly complicated position, because Yorkshire College has been arguing that it really believes in federal universities as a way of kind of keeping the thing going. So the Privy Council turn around and say, OK, you can be a federal university, well done. There's a college in Sheffield that'd like to join you. Now, suddenly the people in Leeds get really cold feet because they quite now fancy the idea of being their own university and don't really want to have the Firth College people in Sheffield join them in a new federal university. So they, they get cold feet about this. So they write a charter saying, hello, we'd like to be the Victoria University of Yorkshire. And they send it in. Um, but the Privy Council think, well, hang on a second. If you don't want to play this federal game, you can't be the University of Yorkshire because you don't want to include everybody in Yorkshire in it. So... There's a wonderful copy in the in the uh, records in the National Archives where what they do is they amend the charter by crossing out every mention of Yorkshire and writing Leeds in pen in the copy of the charter and send it back to them saying, you can have this charter, but you're going to be the University of Leeds. You can't be the University of Yorkshire. So it's the beginning of the end of the federal principle. When it comes to it, the uh, universities in um, uh, the, the colleges that form the Southwest, they're not keen. Um, the, the final attempt is to set one up in the East Midlands. Um, and so when they lay the foundation stone at the University of Nottingham, there's still a sense uh, in the 20s that they might found a, uh, an East Midlands university. But Loughborough and Leicester aren't keen. They want to have their own universities eventually. And the federal principle in England dies off. Drags on a bit in Wales uh, until eventually Cardiff wants to pull out, and then the other institutions want to pull out. And the s- survivor in the UK is the Federal University of London, and all of the excitement about uh, can they be a university with universities in them, which we're looking to find out what happens with the exciting University of London bill um, making its way through Parliament at the moment. Next up, we have a report of university staff views on the Teaching Excellent and Student Outcomes Framework, or TEF, as it's fondly known. The research was produced by UCU, the Universities and College Union, who surveyed just under 6,000 of their union members. So, Anne-Marie, can you tell us about this research, please? Sure thing, Rachel. Um, so um, fans of the TEF out there will know it's uh, been with us since 2016. Uh, it's uh, essentially a tool that's used to discern teaching quality. I'm doing sort of those like air quote things uh, here. Um, and, and Michael Barber, the chair of the RFS, sees it as a catalyst to improve teaching quality across the sector. Um, so UCU commissioned an independent TEF review, which took uh, took place last year. Um, Matt O'Leary and the team at Birmingham City University uh, have led on it. Uh, and there's actually a write-up on the wonky website from from Matt and the team. So they essentially uh, talked, uh, surveyed 6,000 academic staff um, to, to ask them about their awareness, involvement, perceptions of TEF and also what impact it was having on their professional lives. It is a long report. There's 132 pages of it. Um, and uh, the conclusion is, uh, you might not be surprised to hear this, uh, TEF is very unpopular with the academic community that was surveyed. Only one in 10 uh, welcome the development of TEF and 1810 uh, say that it doesn't influence uh, student behaviours, uh, which we actually already knew from a DFE study. So this sort of um, consolidates that finding. Um, interestingly, there's uh, an interview with the chair of TEF in the report. Uh, that's Chris Husbands, the Vice Chancellor of Sheffield Hallam. 
typically pragmatic response from him. Doesn't see TEF going away, sees it as a, a sort of con- continuing part of the higher education landscape and wants to make it as effective as possible. And the responses from academics in the report sort of characterize TEF uh, and the exercises institutions sort of go through to develop their TEF responses as uh, unidirectional, episodic and desk-based assessments um, and, and complains that academics are not represented enough in the institutional processes. I think some of this stuff is fair, actually. It says it's professional services led very often in institutions. And the reality is, is it's quite a hard job getting your TEF response together. So often you will have it project managed by professional services. Um, but I do think it's a little bit unfair um, to say it's unidirectional. I, I've, I've actually had quite positive experience at King's of, of TEF and how it's really thrown a focus onto um, the attainment of underrepresented learners. And it's really fostered some very rich discussions in, in developing our response and understanding uh, where we are on some of these issues. So as ever, if you don't like something, my question always is, well, what, what would you do instead? Uh, and the report um, says that the respondents had lots of ideas about how you might alternatively um, measure teaching quality, although no one recommended Ofsted, which is always a disappointment. Um, uh, but it did ask for a wider debate about what constitutes teaching excellence. Um, of course, the TEF is currently uh, under review. So if you do have ideas, now is the time to put them forward. Uh, William, you're, you are a professor at an institution, of course. So um, I, I'm not sure what your interaction is with the TEF, but I'd be interested to hear your views on the on the process of it and indeed the research that's been produced by UCU. So it's a very interesting piece of research and it kind of confirms, you know, the general impression that the, the, the profession as a whole dislikes this and also lots of, you know, lots of really quite significant criticisms from people like Dorothy Bishop about the, you know, the methodology of the TEF as well as the actual process of it. I suppose what we have to do, though, is, I mean, to pick up a point Marie made, is that, you know, we have to think about what the alternatives to this are and what, what this actually is for. And I mean, I, I think we have to recognise that the TEF is a, is a compromise and what it is is a compromise between a government that found that market mechanisms weren't working in higher education and are trying to introduce a form of market mechanism through, as the, as, which is what governments always do, um, is uh, through, a, through a new form of bureaucracy and universities who wanted the lightest possible touch they could get. And that's what this is. This is, uh, this is you know, one of the reasons it's sort of interesting that it's often outsourced to um, professional um, administrators and, and managers. And that's, that really does reveal the extent to which this is probably not having very much effect on teaching, really, um, because we're not having the sort of deep inspections that even the QAA wanted to have in the 1990s. We're not having anything like Ofsted. This has actually been rather a successfully managed thing by higher education in which we've forced off something much more invasive. And, um, you know, my fear is a reformed version of TEF would be even worse. Um, or we'd move to, which is what the government would really have liked to happen, which is move to a proper market in which you have differential fees and that actually the market makes the decision about teaching quality because people go to institutions that, um, you know, are perceived to have it. So by that, William, should I assume that you think that TEF perhaps should go further? I mean, Amory mentioned Ofsted um, and a really th- uh, kind of a deeper inspection. Is that something that you would advocate for? No, not at all. I mean, I think this is, I think, you know, I think this is like, this is not unlike, this is not unlike the way in which the REF has been quite successful. I mean, for all its problems, it's been quite successful at holding off um, uh, particular forms of uh, of analysis. Um, and the TEF has, the TEF has succeeded in, in, 
in, in, in producing these sets of data, which, as we can see, don't really manage to provide a very clear sense of how good the teaching actually is and aren't actually being used by the students in any useful way to determine which uh, institution they will go to. And indeed, probably they couldn't. Um, the, real, the real question here is, what on earth do we mean when we talk about teaching excellence? And also, one of the things that I think is particularly um, actually uh, um, potentially pernicious even in this report is the notion we should reward teaching excellence because which keeps is keeps being reiterated even through this report because what what does it mean to reward teaching excellence i mean first of all what are you measuring there this is a kind of intangible quality this is precisely why a tef has taken such a long time to emerge with a ref you know we know what we're measuring in a sense and there might be arguments about whether that measurement is good or not but actually that's our job with um with teaching excellence what on earth do we mean by that and then to go on to it and say how do we reward that. I mean, that again sets up all the sorts of inequalities, all the sorts of problems that, uh, you know, you would have thought a union would object to rather than seeking to, uh, seeking to uh, you know, uh, advocate, particularly given all the data we now know about the way in which, um, you know, particular groups, particular teachers are, are, are undervalued by student um, uh, rewards, particularly all the anxieties we have about pressure being put upon staff to give higher grades. All of these things suggest that, you know, any notion of rewarding excellence um, should be really, really fiercely resisted. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Welcome back to Yes, But Does It Correlate, the bit on the wonky podcast with all of the data. We're topical again this week. Using the OFS data, I've plotted the base salary of the head of provider in 2017-18 against the percentage of all staff who earned more than 100k in the same year. There's one huge outlier I've omitted, but other than that, does it correlate? I think it does correlate. I just just got a really strong gut feeling that... um, uh, that when you've got a, a head of provider basic salary really high, you've probably got a cadre of staff around them who are, are similarly uh, sort of experiencing high pay levels. And also, I think it tends to cluster in in sort of medical schools where you've got clinicians on on the payroll and stuff. So I feel like there will be a strong correlation. I'm boldly going to say I think it'll correlate weekly um, in the sense that there will be some outliers. There'll be one or two uh, institutions where the vice chancellor has um, very, very high levels of uh, remuneration um, and within an institution that actually large numbers don't. There'll be a number of real outliers like the London Business School and uh, some of the big uh, some of the big medical uh, uh, departments where you'll find you'll find, uh, you know, actually a very large number of people on on I mean, surprise large number of people on uh, over a hundred thousand but broadly speaking it's going to it's going to as Anne-Marie says I think it'll correlate and the answer is no it doesn't R squared is a frankly pathetic 0.16 it seems that a high salary right at the top of an institution does not predict a high salary elsewhere other senior staff may earn more than 100k but so my research processes particularly in medicine the OFS data includes only English providers, and the outlier was London Business School, which, as you'll know from our other coverage, is both small and very well paid. And of course, where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. See you next time. This month, it's Wonky's eighth birthday, and to celebrate, we got ourselves a fresh new look and feel for Wonky. We caught up with Wonky's CEO, Mark Leach, to blow out the candles. 
So for a long time, Wonky was a personal blog of mine. I was interested in HG policy. I was working in the HG sector and I found loads of fantastic, talented, curious people uh, with ideas about the future of universities and the future of the sector, uh, but they didn't have a voice. At the same time, the national debate about UK HE has always been really narrow, focused very much on tuition fees and uh, a kind of weird Oxbridge obsession. And it felt like I was, felt like there was a need to connect the experts who knew what was going on uh, with a platform that would allow uh, a bigger, more open, better informed debate about universities and their future. It was too big and too important to be left to. Um, a small number of people or, or newspapers who just didn't really get it. Since then, we've grown in all sorts of ways, uh, obviously taking it from just a blog to a suite of information services to help universities stay ahead of the curve. We introduced the Monday morning briefing was the first step outside of uh, uh, our, our kind of the, the blogging platform. Uh, that led us to the Wonky Daily, which now everyone, hits everyone's inbox. Um, every single morning. That led us to do events for our fantastic community. Um, and that led us to do our, our monthly briefing seminars uh, at our HQ, Wonky Live. Um, and it's kind of grown as people have understood that they need to stay on, on top and ahead of the HE policy landscape. It's got a lot more complicated um, and a lot harder to keep track of. Um, and I think Wonky was, was there at the right time to both um, help them help people in universities understand that and also give them um, a platform and a set of ideas and information that they could take and take back to their institutions and use and, and help their universities make better decisions and help navigate the waters around them. So right now we've got almost every university subscribed to Wonky in some way uh, in the UK, uh, which we're thrilled about. We've just figured out a whole new set of ways to help universities stay informed um, we're sending them our printed magazine, our first foray into uh, printed stuff, um, the Wonky Briefing, which I, I think is going to be fantastic for governors, for lay people, or just anyone in university that can't follow every single twist and turn um, that, that some will have to as part of their, part of their jobs via the daily or, or, or the website. Um, Wonky Live is a whole new thing this month where uh, we're going to bring um, our readers and subscribers together uh, with policy experts to talk about what's going on um, and we'll do lots of different formats we'll also take it on a road so uh, we'll start off at our HQ in London but hopefully you'll be seeing Wonky Live uh, in a town near you fairly soon um, and of course Wonkfest we're just thrilled with it became it's become very quickly the centrepiece of our year um, and it's no secret that we're going to do Wonkfest 2019 and we're in advanced stages of being able to um, to, to kind of nail down a, a solid plan for that and, and announce something. Um, certainly a save the date is, is coming your way soon. And thanks to all of our readers, our listeners to the podcast, the hundreds of people who've now written for Wonky and continue to lead the debate about higher education in this country. Here's for the next eight years. So that is about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find the links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Anne-Marie and to William and to Arte and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen. And until next week, stay episodic.